This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. The California kid blows everyone's mind. Jermaine Durandame makes a statement. Masvidal's agent lobbying for McGregor or Usman. The UFC adds flyweights. Yes, you heard me correctly, adds flyweights. Aaron Pico will not take part in Bellator's featherweight tournament. And we're joined today by Big Ben Rothwell and Greg Hardy, who both compete at UFC Fight Night in San Antonio this coming weekend. Thanks to those listening on TSN Radio in Toronto or TSN Radio in Ottawa. Welcome. We appreciate it. And to those listening to the podcast, we appreciate your patronage. And we're not asking for Patreon money, just your patronage. Just keep listening, keep subscribing, leave comments, and uh, we, we appreciate it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with Patreon. You know, please do support uh, a lot of those who do um, contribute to this great community. We appreciate it. So, where do we get started? Oh, yeah, Uriah Faber, he's back. And in spectacular fashion, no less. Less than a minute to dispatch of Ricky Simone, a major up-and-comer in the bantamweight division. He does it in Sacramento, and it's uh, in spectacular fashion. Uh, you know, nobody expected that. I think the knockout prop was like plus 1,200 or something like that. So that's how unexpected that was. Uh, that would have been a good bet, though, if anybody made it. I don't see why somebody... I'm, I'm guessing there's somebody out there that must have made it, but eh, it wasn't me, I'll tell you that much. But let's uh, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit here, folks. This is you hear that noise? That's me pumping the brakes. Because if you think that a win over the 15th ranked fighter in Ricky Simone warrants a title shot, you're out of your mind. Because if you look up and down the bantamweight division, and you say, "Well, you should match Uriah Faber up with Aljamain Sterling," or you should match Uriah Faber up with so-and-so, and and then your response is, yeah, but he won't beat those guys. Well, then why are you putting him up against the bantamweight champion of the world? If you don't think he can beat Marlon Reich or beat Peter Yan or beat um, Asun Sao or beat Aljamain Sterling, I mean, maybe Asun Sao is a good matchup because at least that would be a matchup. Like, if you look at the top five, I think Pedro Munoz and and Rafael Asun Sao are two guys that Faber might be able to contend with, might be able to compete with, and that's no disrespect to them. I just think, think Faber's really good. I'm not trying to take anything away from Faber. Aside from a title shot, I don't think that Faber should jump the queue. I know that Cejudo wants the bigger name and all of that, but let's be realistic here. I, I know that Bisping um, fought Henderson. That was his first title defense, and he, he beat he beat Dan Henderson. But A, that's a grudge match. B, there wasn't really a surefire contender at the time. There, there were, you know, Yoel Romero was there. Um, but... In this situation, th- this is why I'm, I'm steadfastly, and I, I don't really like the Dan Henderson fight. I'm not trying to, to go to bat for that one, or, you know, that's not the hill I want to die on. But this is the biggest issue that I have with Uriah Faber jumping the line and getting a title shot against Henry Cejudo. This division has been absolutely stalemated for years. We had TJ Dillashaw as the champion, he fought Dominic Cruz. So, so I think before Dillashaw fought Cejudo, the, there were only four people that had competed for the bantamweight divi- division title in like three years. It was Cody, it was TJ, it was Uriah Faber, who's coming back now and he's been gone for a while, um, and Dominic Cruz. You had those four people. It was like a revolving door. So finally, finally, someone new enters the mix. Henry Cejudo, along with Marlon Moraes, they fight for the title. Cejudo wins. We finally have two new faces in the division, and now you want to go back to the old faces again? Nah. That's not going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. So you think that Faber 
can come back and just, you know, all the, all the work that these guys have put in in the bantamweight division, you look at, you know, Aljamain Sterling, you look at Peter Jan, who's new, but, you know, obviously has, is coming up very quickly. You've got even Cody Garbrandt, his teammate. Um, you know, he's been, he's been around for a while, but, you know, he's, he's not in the mix right now. But, again, Corey Sandhagen, an up-and-comer. Up Rob Font. A lot of these guys have put in work for years and years and years to get into this mix. Of course, Uriah has, uh, has done lots of work over the years, but coming out of retirement to just jump the line, to me, would be very disrespectful to the rest of the division. And I know that this is a promotion. I know that this isn't, uh, you know, based 100% on merit all the time. But look at how many title shots Uriah Faber has had in the UFC. I think it's four. One for the interim and three for the undisputed title, if I'm not mistaken. And he wasn't able to win on any of those occasions. So it's not like it makes a lot of sense to have him try one more time. It would be a nice story. I mean, if he ends up beating Henry Cejudo, great story for sure. But at the same time, I just don't think that it makes a lot of sense when you look at how much hard work a lot of these guys have put in, waiting, waiting, and pining for their opportunity, which was never there because all the same guys were fighting for the title for all of these years. And now we have some new faces finally in the mix. This division has been given a, a, a breath of fresh air. And now, you know, we want to bring back Uriah Faber and put him into the title mix? And I'm not trying to dis- disrespect Uriah Faber here, but I think that doing that would be disrespectful to the rest of the division. It just you, you have these guys that have worked so hard and have been you know fighting, fighting alternating wins and losses, and finally some of them are finally in that mix, and you want them to just have to keep waiting. It just does not make sense to me. And I like Uriah Faber a lot, and I think that he's an incredible ambassador for the sport. I think that uh, what he does on a day-to-day basis is incredible, running his businesses, uh, staying in shape at age 40. Gets the fastest, uh, you know, fastest win. I think one of the fastest wins in bantamweight history, and the uh, oldest guy to win in uh, in bantamweight history. These are all great accomplishments, especially getting a knockout, no less. But let's let's be real here. It does not make sense for him to jump the line. It doesn't even make sense for him to jump Benavidez, who should I think get a shot before he does at bantamweight. Benavidez should get the flyweight shot. And uh, let's look at that main event. Because this is something that angers me as well. I'm full of anger today. Jermaine Durandame stops Aspen Ladd in, what was it, 16 seconds? I'm going to pull this up. I just want to make sure I have the correct amount of time here. Main event, 16 seconds. She stopped Aspen Ladd in 16 seconds. Herb Dean didn't stop Aspen Ladd in 16 seconds. Herb Dean made the call to end the fight. He, you know, Jermaine spun her around. She was on her knees. She did, was not intelligently defending herself. Or she wasn't even facing her opponent. And he, he, called, he called it off. Was it a fast stoppage? Absolutely. I'm not defending the stoppage. But I'm also, I also will defend her by saying, to me, that's a judgment call. If you're in the cage and you see someone get hit with a shot like that and get spun around, I know that it's probably from the momentum of her looking to throw a punch. I get that. But you have to make a call at that moment about how much more punishment that you want that fighter to take. That's the ref's job, is to step in and make sure that in those situations, they're handled properly. That they don't get hurt more badly than they need to. He did, he did jump in prematurely. Don't get me wrong. But you have to keep in mind that he's there for fighter safety. That looked like a pretty vicious knockdown at the very least, if you don't want to call it a knockout. Very vicious knockdown, something you don't often see that early in a fight in the bantamweight division. 
Lad's coming off a bad weight cut, and I know that you should not take that into consideration when you're refereeing a fight, but it's hard to ignore what she looked like on the scale. So if you're Herb Dean, you have to make a call at that split second. And the problem with what we as people who look at the sport, both media, fans, whoever, even, even the people in the commentary booth, when you watch something back in slow motion, you are completely disregarding that in that moment, it's happening like that. It's not happening in slow motion. You have, you have a split second to, to, to determine whether someone's going to take more damage or less damage. And sometimes when you make the call for that fighter to take less damage, you are taking a, a calculated risk that you're going to get criticized for it. But I will tell you this. Had he not stopped that fight at that moment, there's a good chance that Ladd takes three, four, five more shots on the ground and that fight's over anyways. And he prevented her from taking those shots with what might not have been a fully rehydrated brain. I don't know. I don't know the science behind it. But at the same time, you have to gauge in that moment what the level of risk is for that fighter. And if you think the level of risk is too high of them suffering undue damage then you jump in there and you stop that fight. And that's what Herb Dean did. And I think that with him doing that, we need to take a step back and say, in that moment, if I'm a referee, is there a chance I might have stopped it at that time too? Because if there's even an iota of a possibility that you would have stopped it, you can't blame Herb Dean. And I personally think that there's a shot I would have, there's a good chance I would have stopped that fight too. I don't know if it's a 30% chance, 90% chance. I don't know. But... Herb Dean has a lot of experience, and he has made a lot of mistakes. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to pump the tires of Herb Dean here. He's made a lot of mistakes on both sides, where he's allowed a fighter to take too much damage. Rockhold versus Weidman comes to mind. That's been mentioned by some people this past week. And that's probably why it comes to mind. But this is the flip side, where you're not allowing the, ta- the fighter to take damage where, that they shouldn't be taking. So you have to assess the situation on a case-by-case basis, and in this particular case... Herb Dean looked at it and thought that it should be stopped. And then the other issue I have with that is everybody's now on, on social media making fun of Jermaine Durandame, saying she doesn't deserve a bonus. That's why she didn't get a bonus. Are you kidding me? 16-second knockout is the official result of that fight, regardless of how, of how that happened. And it didn't happen out of nowhere. It wasn't like a silly disqualification. She dropped Aspen Ladd with a serious, serious punch that could have dropped a lot of other people in the division as well. So we should not take credit away from Jermaine Durandame for that. We should not make it look like Jermaine Durandame, you know, shouldn't have gotten a win in that fight because whether it was too early of a win, it's still a win. And it's still a win that she did nothing wrong in earning. Nothing. And people go back to the home fight. Oh, she hit her after the bell. That's another referee faux pas that people blame on Durandame. Don't blame Durandame for her hitting Holly Holm after the bell. The referee's job is to be in there and make sure that does not happen. The referee knows there's 10 seconds. You hear that clap, clap, clap? In your head, you're counting down from 10. And if there's even a, a split second where someone throws a, fight, a, a punch after the bell or kick after the bell or whatever, the ref needs to get in there. Even if they end up having to take a punch on the shoulder or whatever to get in there, That you can't blame Jermaine Durandame. You've got to... You know, one of the rules of, of mixed martial arts is defend yourself at all times. And if you're getting hit by a punch after the bell, you're not defending yourself at all times. 
unless you were just going to get hit by that punch regardless of what when what time in the round it was. But people blame Durandame for that too. So everybody's blaming Durandame for getting a knockout and Durandame for after, shots after the bell when regardless of what why that happened, she's still getting the wins in those situations where really it was not her fault. It wasn't her fault that Herb Dean stopped the fight against Ladd. It wasn't her fault that she hit Holly Holm after the bell. It's the referee's fault. The onus is on them to be there. So why is everybody picking on Jermaine Durandame in this situation? Jermaine Durandame is now the number one contender for the bantamweight belt. And I also hear people saying, oh, she's a part-time fighter. You know, what happens if she wins? She's not going to be able to defend it. Based on my interview with her last week, that couldn't be further from the truth. She's suffered some really bad injuries over the year that have precluded her from fighting. She used to be a kickboxer and, and used to fight in Muay Thai like... You're fighting once a week, <laughs> once every two weeks. Like she's not, she's used to being active. She just hasn't been getting the fights, or she's had to pull out due to injury. Like if you look at Jermaine Durandame, you know, over on Tapology, how many fights has she pulled out of? Like you, you have to, you have to gauge these situations. You know, if she's pulling out of fights due to injury, you know that that's out of her control. Against Renault, Durandame injury. Against Ashley Evan Smith. Durandame foot injury. Against Sarah Kaufman, Durandame injury. Against Dudieva, Durandame injury. Against Julie Kedzie, Kedzie injury. So, uh, other, you know, other than the Julie Kedzie fight, every one of her fight cancellations has been due to getting injured. And that has derailed her from fighting. So, when you, when you look at what she's had to go through outside of the octagon, in terms of her injuries, you can't... Everybody's kind of making these assumptions that are are kind of baseless. And I think that we should be looking forward to Durandame versus Nunez too. Even the first stoppage was, uh, you know, if you go back and watch it, it wasn't, it was, you know, I wouldn't say it was as bad as this particular one with, with Aspen Ladd, but it's still, you know, Jermaine Durandame still could have probably at least attempted to get out of that situation a little bit better. But uh, again, be that as it may, Jermaine is now the number one contender, 35 years old. And uh, I'm interested in this fight. I, I like this fight. I, I like the rematch with Nunez. I think that Durandame has looked really good in, uh, you know, since her loss to Nunez and that she's earned her way back into the top of the title picture. And she's to me, is the consensus number one contender in the division now. So I want to see that fight. But uh, I think we got to see what happens next weekend in Edmonton between Cyborg and uh, Felicia Spencer before we decide what direction, or before the UFC, rather, decides what direction Amanda Nunes is going to go in. Because Nunes seems happy to fight either Jermaine Durandame or Chris Cyborg. So, that's uh, that's my takeaway from, from that. I think that a lot of the disrespect towards Durandame is very much undue. And you talk about her not defending the featherweight title. That that I get. You know, she, she had the title stripped as a result of not wanting to defend it. Uh, she cl- claimed last week that the reason why is because she said the UFC told her if she beat home, she would get the next shot at noon as a 135. Then they balked at that and wanted her to fight Cyborg at 145, and she didn't think that was fair. So, you know, I, I, from that perspective, I kind of get it. Uh, looking at the rest of the card, some uh, some impressive upsets, uh, namely John Allen, or John Alan, if you would pronounce it in the Brazilian way. Gets that uh, unanimous decision victory over Mike Rodriguez, short notice opponent. Mike Rodriguez has some work to do when it comes to controlling distance. He's got an 82 inch reach, similar to like a Stefan Struve, or, you know, you should watch more tape of John Jones because the reason Alan won, won that fight was he was able to close the distance with ease. It's allowed him to, to hit him with some, some pretty wild strikes, some pretty wild hooks, 
and then uh, also get a lot of takedowns. So kudos to uh, John Alon for getting that win. I thought that that was pretty impressive. Uh, Wellington Truman almost gets an upset over Carl Roberson. Um, but really, I th- think the most impressive performance has to go to uh, Josh Emmett. Mirsad Bektik, fantastic wrestler, ends up pretty much staying on the feet, and Emmett, it, Emmett just has incredibly heavy hands at 145. You know, the fight with Stevens, you know, that's a fight that, if it wasn't for the fact that Emmett got really badly hurt in that fight, like, those are two fighters that are very similar. Big striking power, good wrestling. So, uh... I don't think Josh Emmett's going to want to run that one back, but it would be uh, interesting to see what would happen after Emmett has bounced back in these two fights. Um, his teammate Andre Feely gets a finish as well over Shaman Marais. That was a, a very good finish. Um, Juliana Pena comes, uh, comes back. Now, this, this fight left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because uh, it was pretty much tied going to the third round. I think if you look at the judges' scorecards, I would, I would be shocked if it wasn't. Um, and Pena... Um, they're in a, you know, she's in a scramble with Montano early in the third. Grabs the cage, ends up shifting the momentum. Ref warns her about grabbing the cage, but Pena gets top control for like three minutes. If you're a referee in that situation, you got to stand them up. You got to stand them up. That that that's a game changing, illegal maneuver right there. And I, you know, I don't blame Pena for doing it. She got a warning. You know, what the what's the worst that can happen is, uh, you know, it seemed like the referee wasn't going to take a point. So if it does get stood up, whatever you're, you're playing with house money with a lot of these, you know these these things where you're grabbing the cage or you're you're you know have your fingers out during your your striking defense to threaten with the eye pokes, low blows. The refs don't do anything. They give you a pass. More people should cheat in fights like that, because the refs don't do enough. Should be a much stronger penalty because now Nico Montano loses. Basically, she could have doubled her purse with a win bonus. Have to walk away with half of what I'm sure she thought she was going to earn going into that fight as a result of an illegal maneuver. So, I mean, kudos to Juliana Pena for having the savvy to do that, but uh, the referee should know better than to just let her have top position after doing that, unless he didn't see it. In which case, you know, it is what it is. But uh, Ryan Hall also looking good, standing on the feet with Elkins for a lot of this fight, throwing some wheel kicks, hitting Elkins right on the chin. Hall by KO was like 12 to 1, like Uriah Faber. So, uh, that would have been uh, interesting to see as well. Uh, Benito Lopez over Vince Morales. Almost everybody thought Morales won that one, and the, all the scorecards were, were completely different. Weird fight. But uh, onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards we go. Uh, uh, Jorge Masvidal is on top of the world right now, as one can imagine. That knockout over Ben Askren has still been uh, talked about almost two weeks later. And rightfully so. And uh, his agent, uh, Abe Kawa, who's uh, the only agent I've ever had on this show before, thanks, thanks to his windfall lawsuit victory for his client, Yoel Romero. Not, you know, he wasn't the lawyer, but he, uh, he pursued this. Masvidal's agent wants either Conor McGregor or Kamaru Usman. I think the McGregor-Masvidal fight is interesting. But if I'm McGregor, you know, you got to talk to the UFC and say, look, I, I want to come back at 155. So if Jorge wants the fight, he needs to move to 155. Or you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to move up to 170. I don't know what McGregor's body is like right now. I don't know. Maybe he's walking around at 195 or something and thinks that a cut to 155 would be off. But uh, Masvidal versus McGregor is an interesting one. That's one that I think that Conor might find intriguing. You know, if I'm Conor McGregor, I'm taking a step back and waiting to see what happens with, with Nate Diaz before I make any decisions. If Nate Diaz has a nice win over uh, Anthony Pettis, 
that's where if you're Conor McGregor, you say, okay, let's let's do the trilogy fight. But I don't blame Masvidal's agent for taking a step back and uh, and saying, oh, you know, Conor's uh, Conor or Usman is what what we want. You can always ask for anything, right? But uh, we got a lot to uh, look at as well here, though, in the welterweight division for uh, Kamaru Usman before we make any decisions here, too. You got all, you got Leon Edwards on a seven-fight win streak. He's in the main event against Rafael Dos Anjos this weekend. Usman recently beat RDA, so you don't need to run that one back. But uh, I do think you need to take a look at uh, what's going on in that division with Colby Covington. And uh, I think Covington is, you know, if he gets a win over Robbie Lawler, is in the next shot, but... The interesting thing about that is that Masvidal and Colby Covington are good friends. So what do you do there? If Covington doesn't have an impressive victory, maybe Masvidal does get the next shot. I don't know if it's if it's necessarily warranted, but right now he's he's on fire. He's clearly marketable. People people like him. You know they they di- strongly dislike Covington, but uh, I think that's because he's been trying to get the public to to dislike him. One interesting thing I did hear uh, in Dan Lambert's uh, interview with, uh, I can't remember if it was with James Lynch or MMA Junkie Radio, so I'll, sh- I'll give both of them a shout-out. He mentioned that they've been trying to keep training partners away from each other whose paths might cross. And from what I understand, Masvidal was not training with Colby Covington for this last camp, even though they're good friends. So uh, that, I find that very interesting. And Masvidal and Co- Covington have discussed fighting each other if it came down to it. So it's interesting to think about. Uh, the UFC have added a uh, added some flyweights. Yes, flyweights being added to the roster. We've got 15 in the rankings. They they put Sergio Pettis back in there. Yeah, let's, let's, let's put him back in there. Yeah, let's quietly put him back in there. Now he's ranked again. They added a couple others. You know, they added Brandon Moreno back to the rankings, even though he hasn't. Uh, he's already he's fought outside of the promotion since. But yeah, he's squeeze back in there. We got we got 15. We need 15 people. But I love it. Let's bring the flyweights back. I think Dana White has heard. Dana White, to his credit, you know, he says that he doesn't listen to what a lot of people say. He doesn't, he doesn't read online articles. I don't know if I buy into that. I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm pretty confident that he has articles sent to him that uh, people feel would, uh, would pique his interest. But I think that he's listened in terms of the flyweights. And I think that Dana White likes to be proven right. So if he brings the flyweights back and they're good, it's good for business. If he brings the flyweights back and people say, you know, this is boring, it's going to be a I hate to say I told you so situation. So we should probably uh, we should probably just be thankful that he, maybe he listened to somebody and that uh, he's going to bring the flyweights back. He, he signed Brandon Moreno. He signed uh, Askar Askarov from overseas, a big prospect in the flyweight division. I would like to see more flyweights signed. And uh, I think that one other thing that's important to note about the flyweight division is that a lot of the successful Chinese fighters in the UFC have been from smaller divisions. You look at Song Yudong. Uh, Liu Pingyuan fought this past weekend. He's on the smaller side, 135er. They might look at it and say, there are a lot of uh, really successful fighters in the smaller divisions from China. And if we're trying to grow that market, maybe we do need to reopen the flyweight division and... uh, and see what comes to us from that region. And I think that there are a lot of really talented flyweights out there, and a lot of the ones that the UFC released, like a Dustin Ortiz, I don't even, I don't think he got signed, unless Ryzen signed them. I can't remember if Dustin Ortiz signed somewhere. I have to look that up. 
But uh, a lot of the uh, ones that they released haven't really gone anywhere. They're still out there. They're still looking for work. So they could rebuild that division fairly easily. So, yeah, but Dustin Ortiz doesn't have anything lined up. I, I can't remember if he signed anywhere or not. But the UFC could easily, you know, repopulate that division. You know, Bellator isn't in the flyweight business. Obviously, you have uh, one championship. They've got a lot of flyweights. They've got Demetrius Johnson, namely, uh, as their big draw. Ryzen has uh, some flyweights. So there are people signing flyweights, but I think a lot of the good American flyweights that the uh, UFC let go are still around. And they could easily repopulate that division. I think they're going to take a wait-and-see approach. We've got a lot of good flyweight fights coming up. And um, I think that uh, when they look at that, that's something that uh, could could pique their interest. And uh, I think that it would be right to do so. Um, also on Ariel Hawani's show this past week was uh, Scott Coker, who announced the participants in the featherweight uh, tournament. And I, I put out a tweet saying, unless I misheard, it doesn't look like Aaron Pico is in the field, and Aaron Pico is not in the field. Um, so my question is why? Now, I think the obvious answer is, you know, the guy just lost to Borix, and uh, he lost in pretty devastating fashion. But let's keep in mind that every other second of that fight, Pico was dominating. And if they want to grow Aaron Pico, I think it would be wise to put him in a position where he can move through that featherweight division as seamlessly as possible through that tournament. If you match him up with guys that you think he can beat, and I think that they have matched him up with people that he thinks he can beat. Even a Borix rematch, I think. If you put him in there with Borix, based on what we saw for most of that fight, if you make that rematch... Maybe he comes back and he, he, he gets in that tournament and he, he advances a little bit. Now, I mean, listen, I don't blame Scott Coker when he comes out and says, we're going to take a step back with Aaron Pico. We're going you know, we, to temper our expectations a little bit. I get that, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I do. I'm not, I don't think that they need to you know, throw this guy right back into the, the, the heart of, of the lion's den at, at featherweight. But at the same time, I think that, when you invest in a prospect like this, I mean, look, you've got Taiwan Claxton in, in the field there. You've got A.J. McKee. You've got a lot of your young featherweights who have done well. Pico hasn't particularly done well, but he's beaten some good competition. And I think that if you want to grow Aaron Pico, I think you make, you, you make your fights. They don't have brackets, so you can basically put him against whoever the— if he gets through the first round, you can put him against whoever you think is the best of the rest that wins in the first round. In the quarterfinals. So, listen, I, I understand people are going to be frustrated with what I'm saying right here, that you need to throw Aaron Pico right back into, uh, into the deep end. But they've been doing that, and it hasn't been successful thus far. But it also seems like when you put Pico in there against lesser competition, he smokes them. And I think he was beating the brakes off of, of Adam Borix until, until, you know, he's winning until he lost. That's kind of the way to put it. And I, I can understand why you want to be careful with him from a, you know, brain damage perspective, you know, getting knocked out all those times. I get that you want to be careful with him there. That, that I completely understand. But I also think that if he wanted to be in that tournament, he should be in it. And another name that I'm surprised wasn't in the tournament is Robin Van Roosmullen, who I thought signed to Bellator to get into that tournament. And uh, he, he's not in it. So what's the plan with him? I had heard that they were possibly thinking of putting those two against each other, which I think would be uh, a strange idea. I mean, I think that Pico would be able to take 
Robin down fairly easily, but if he gets hit with one shot from Robin Van Roosmal, he could he could go out. I mean, Robin is a former kickboxer, kickboxing champion in two divisions in Glory, They're like the best of the best kickboxers. No disrespect to Bellator kickboxing, but Glory is where the the lions of kickboxing live. I keep using lion as an analogy. No need to point it out. I'm being my own Twitter troll right now by pointing it out. See that? Get in front of the situation. So. That's uh, that's that's just my two cents. I think that they could have found a way to get Pico in that tournament and pave the way for him to succeed a little bit. He would have, he might have eventually lost. But what happens if Pico ends up picking up momentum? I mean, he he has the skills. Like if you watch him fight, you watch his striking, you have you watch his grappling. Like he hits harder than most featherweights on the planet. He's got legit knockout power. And his wrestling is, I think, far and away one of the best in featherweight MMA, if not the best, in terms of the credentials especially. So, if you can put him in a position to succeed, that's how you can build this guy back up in a, in a much faster way than having him fight guys that are a little bit lesser competition over time. But you never know if he gets caught by one of them too, and then what? What happens if you put him up against like a four and two fighter and he loses? He was supposed to beat Zach Freeman, lost that one fairly quickly. So it's, it's risk-reward with Pico. And I think that that's why they kept putting him against good competition is they were hoping he would bounce back and get wins, and he was very close against Borax, and he's training at Jackson's now. It looked very good in that fight. And again, he was winning until he lost. It's a weird thing to say. But, uh, you know, I, I do... If people say, I think Pico should need some time to heal up, I get it. But if Pico's going to be getting in there again soon, you know, around the time the tournament starts, then what? So, uh... That, that would be interesting to me. I want to see when he, his return is going to be scheduled for. Um, a new story that I put out today uh, that was, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that I had to put it out there because uh, I, I hate seeing stuff like this, as I'm sure anybody does. But uh, Abel Trujillo um, is currently in prison in uh, Douglas County, Colorado. So uh, he's being charged with two felony charges, felony sexual exploitation of a child and felony obscenity. Um, so I don't really know where to go with this, aside from saying that uh, just along the way, reading through a lot of what uh, this guy's history is, you know, I, I don't understand how the UFC were able to have this guy on their roster based on what, what I saw from court records in Iowa and what I still see from like court records in Iowa that are still current. That involve, you know, um, child support payments and some other things that I uh, I, un- I uncovered uh, during this, you know, getting the story straight. You know, you, this, this is the kind of story you don't want to mess up. You want to make sure that you uh, you have all your information straight. So you can go to tsn.ca slash UFC to learn more about that. But uh, I uh, I think that that story in particular is a very, very uh, tough one. I think that... Uh, you know that it's uh, it's difficult to to get through and to, and to read and to do research on, and uh, it was interesting to I guess delve into that side of things, and um, hopefully whatever this is is uh, it's you know not as bad as it looks, but uh, from the looks of things, it's uh, not good. We've got a card in uh, in San Antonio this weekend. Headlined by Rafael Dos Anjos and uh, Leon Edwards, as I mentioned earlier. This is an ESPN card. And uh, I don't know. Looking at it, 
from top to bottom. It makes me wonder if they are going to try to beef up these, you know, whether they're trying to beef up these ESPN cards or not, because this is this is a card where, like, I think the highest tier, like, if you if you were to take tiers of talent and and assess it that way, the main event is by far the highest tier talent. Like, those are top fighters and welterweight, but from there, you know, it's, I think there are a lot of great matchups here. I think the matchmaking is phenomenal. But uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. And uh, I'm not sure what uh, this as, a, as an ESPN card, a linear ESPN card, brings to the table. And the, the next ESPN card, the one in Newark, is also lacking, so to speak. Um, so... I think, like, listen. When I when I when I say it's lacking, I I don't mean to take a shot at at these fighters. I I think that, you know, I love watching these events, and I think that there are still some fights on here that, like, all the fights on here, I'm I'm very eager to see and I'm excited to see. Um, and I, they keep putting Greg Hardy on these ESPN cards, and um, it makes me wonder how much, you know, the general public will want to watch this guy. Like, is he? I wonder if they have. Metrics that show whether this guy's a draw or not, because they keep putting him on these these big ESPN cards. I'm sure they have metrics for how many people are watching at any given time, and it must be by design. Uh, he's not in the co-main event this time around. He's on the main card, and I think that uh, based on what we saw last time with him in the co-main event, where he absolutely starched Dmitry Smolyakov, you know, Dana White criticized that particular matchup afterwards because he just thought that this guy was a was not a very good fighter. He's been since been released from the uh, UFC, I believe. So this is a really good matchup, Greg Hardy, Juan Adams, because I think we're dealing with two very raw fighters. Like Juan Adams, we saw him against um, Arjun Buller, and Buller was able to take him down. And, uh, you know, Juan Adams is a, is a really high-caliber wrestler. You know, he he's comes from a good wrestling pedigree, whereas Hardy has no wrestling background. So th- the reason why I find this fight very interesting is I want to see if Juan Adams can can wear on... Greg Hardy and tire him out because Juan Adams will be the bigger fighter. He's, you know, he's a big dude. He's like six six. On fight night, he's like two hundred and eighty five pounds. He's gonna wear on Greg Hardy and uh, and make him tired. Potentially, if he doesn't get hit by a big shot, because we've seen Greg Hardy has that power. But this is the first time that you can look at this and say they're matching Greg Hardy up with somebody that they know can beat him. They definitively know that this is going to be a tough matchup for Greg Hardy, and I, I like that. I think that I think that after Dana White saw what happened last time, where it looked like a setup fight, Dana White doesn't like the looks of that optically. This looks like one where we're going to see some pretty stiff competition for Greg Hardy, and it's kind of a sink or swim. He's not being thrown into the deep end necessarily, he's, but he's fighting a, a high caliber fighter here in Juan Adams. You know, Juan Adams is a, is a tough guy. He doesn't have you know, big one-punch knockout power, but he has the ability to tire you out. And uh, we've seen what happens when Greg Hardy gets tired out. The co-main event is Walt Harris versus Alexei Olenek, and I, I like this one as well. I think that uh, this is kind of a, a an interesting stylistic matchup. One thing I will say is that I was very impressed with Olenek striking against Overeem in his last fight. I thought that it looked very improved. And I think that uh, Walt Harris is in tough here. I think that this is a, a fight that Olenek has a lot more ways of winning. And uh, while I like Walt Harris, that's just my my perspective on this, is I think Olenek 
has a lot more ways to win this fight. And uh, judging by the odds, you know, I, I I don't really have any picks like I would normally do with Joe, who, as you've probably realized by now, is absent this week uh, due to um, a death uh, a death that uh, to a, a family member of a of a friend of his. So uh, Joe Joe isn't here this week, and I'm not sure what we're going to do for next week uh, when I'm going to be in Edmonton. But um, looking at uh, this particular matchup, the odds on it is that, you know, Olenek's an underdog, and I think that that's, uh, that line is wrong. I think that Olenek should be the favorite there. there you know, you can usually judge how good a card is going to be by looking at the lines and looking at how close the lines are, and this is a, this is a card that has a lot of really close lines. Tell you that much. Ray Borg back at Bantamweight against Gabriel Silva. Gabriel Silva, a training partner of Henry Cejudo's. Borg looked very sluggish in his last outing. He had missed weight. I think he had some sort of issue going on that uh, caused him to miss weight. And, uh, you know, if you look at Ray Borg's recent history on topology from September of 2017 to now, two years. There are one, two, three, four, five, six canceled fights. That's a lot. That is a lot. So, uh, I mean, the thing about the six canceled fights is, and I should really uh, phrase this in a way that uh, is honest about the situation. You know, two of those four were from his the last card he fought on, where two of his opponents pulled out. Uh, Benavidez, that was a medical issue uh, during fight week. Uh, Brandon Moreno, that was uh, Borg ha- having to pull out due to that eye injury, UFC 229. Um, another one of those was just about being rescheduled. So of all of those, only two of those issues were Borg-related of the six. So I don't want to make it look like Borg is a flake or anything along those lines. But he did miss weight for that last one, which is tough to see because he has moved up from flyweight. Made 125 against Demetrius Johnson, and uh, and now what? Although he did have a weight complication, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in Edmonton, he was supposed to fight. So I want to see what Ray Borg still has. Because to me, there was a point in time, and Borg is only 25 years old. He's turning 26 in August. But there was a time where I thought Ray Borg was almost certainly going to be a champion in this division. He had, he had tons of promise as a prospect. So I would like to see Ray Borg bounce back. I think that he's got so much talent. I'm interested to see what happens with Gabriel Silva. He's uh, he looks like a, a talented kid as well. Seven seven and zero fighter. His last fight was uh, at featherweight, and now he's moving uh, down to bantamweight to fight Ray Borg. He hasn't fought like the best of the best competition, that's for sure. But trains with uh, Henry Cejudo. I mean, in his last fight, he beat an undefeated fighter, so I shouldn't say that. But, uh, yeah, it looks like he actually has fought pretty good competition. I'll take that back, just looking at who he's fought. But uh, I want to see how, how he does in the UFC. He's a, a good prospect. Pretty big underdog as well on this card. Uh, Clidson Abreu. He was uh, given a short-notice uh, fight against uh, Mago Berenkalaev, which is never an easy task. <laughs> he's taking on Sam Alvey. But Clidson's very good, and he's a, he's a favorite there as well. And then the return of Jin Su Sun. People expected Peter Yan to roll over this guy. I think he was a late replacement. And he looked really good in that fight despite getting a, a unanimous decision loss. So he's taking on uh, Mario Bautista, who recently fought uh, Cody, uh, Corey Sanhagen on, uh, on short notice. 
And uh, Roxanne Mataferi was supposed to be facing Liz Carmouche, now taking on uh, Jennifer Maia. And Maia is a former champion and uh, in Invicta, and I think has a win over Mataferi yeah, a couple years back. Split decision win back in 2016. So they're going to run that one back. Speaking of running fights back, Andre Arlovsky versus Ben Rothwell. Almost 11 years to the date, they fought on the Affliction Band card. There's a throwback. The t-shirt guy, Tom Atencio. So, now we've got the rematch 11 years in the making. Wow. How exciting. Totally different fighters now. And it's nice to see Ben Rothwell back. We saw him come back recently uh, against Blagoje Ivanov, a fight a lot of people thought he won. And uh, subsequently, Ivanov has gone on to be tied to Ivasa. So because he won that fight, he ended up getting a big fight and then ended up winning it. So uh, Ben Rothwell's back, and we uh, get a chance to speak with him. I know he was very hesitant to do media uh, for his last fight when he was coming off that suspension, when he fought uh, Junior Dos Santos. Oh, sorry, actually, it was when he fought uh, Ivanov the last time uh, he fought Ivanov. It was uh, back in Wichita, Kansas. He, was, he did a scrum, but he was pretty hesitant to do a lot of media. But he took the time to sit down with us on the TSN MMA show, and we appreciate that. Here's Ben Rothwell on the TSN MMA show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce this week's guest. I'm pleased to be joined now by Ben Rothwell taking on Andre Arlovsky nearly 11 years to the day. A rematch from their, uh, their matchup at Affliction Band. So, Ben, what's the biggest difference? I know there are a ton of differences uh, between that fight 11 years ago, but if you could pinpoint one thing that's the biggest difference between that fight and this coming fight, what would it be? I'm a completely different fighter. Growing up, I was a boy when he fought me the first time, and I feel like now I've come into my own. And, uh, you know, even with my layoff in my last fight, I'm still kind of figuring things out. I can honestly say... uh, feel better than I've ever felt before so I have a skill set that uh never had before that affliction card I mean affliction back then everybody was wearing affliction shirts they were trying to compete with the UFC and they had a lot of big names on those two affliction pay-per-views that they had um what was it like being on that card and being part of I guess uh, probably a promotion that you know was kind of working uh, on the fly flying by oh, the seat of their pants the show was as over as top as the clothes were <laughs> it, it was a uh, it was pretty amazing experience so todd beard is the one that put the whole thing together and uh he was the one that had of affliction he liked to stay out of the limelight he had tom and tessio kind of being the front man for the whole thing but it was todd beard that did a lot for us uh because of him stepping up and making that card it, it changed uh it changed a lot of things for fighters as far as um so you know a lot to do with the pay scale actually uh, a lot of the guys got some some pretty lucrative deals uh from that and uh the show you know i think it was a pretty pretty hell of a show when you look at all the guys that fought on that card uh, he, he really went all out and he he wanted all three to happen but unfortunately that third show got canceled from some unfortunate circumstances but it looked like the first two shows did a did a really good job and it was just uh it was just too over the top that they couldn't they couldn't keep going with it. He said Todd told me that he never planned on doing it long term. He said he just wanted three. He wanted three awesome ones that would go down in history and have something, but they couldn't even get that, so that was unfortunate. You and I are around the same age. I think you're a couple months older than I am. 
it reminded me of when WCW came in and just started getting like paying big money to all the big wrestlers that that would move over from the WWF back then WWF to to come to WCW. Affliction kind of did change the game in in that sense. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they they were throwing some money around that kind of forever changed things. And uh, I'm just happy that uh, I, I was able to be there, be a part of it. Now I don't know how much of the the main event you remember because you uh, you were in the co-main event and, and uh, it had was lost. thirty seconds. Yeah, there wasn't you, <laughs> much of a main event. Did you watch it though? Did you did you watch it yeah, after the co-main? Yeah, I, I was in the back because because Tim and I were training partners. Yeah. So I trained with him. You know, I was I was I was there militaries for almost six years. So yeah, I was watching. I just I, I don't know what that was about. I, I trained with Tim for so long. I, I never would expect him to go down from thirty seconds like that. I just remember watching it live, and when uh, you mentioned the production quality was was really high, like the, they they really put up, amped up the production level. But when Fedor came out, he came out to like that orchestral Russian music, and it was very like down tempo and dark. And I just remember being very scared watching that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different different style. He did. He was, you know, at the time he was uh, considered the very best heavyweight in the world. Now, you have a, a quote, uh, there's not a man on this planet that can beat me and only politics can slow me. You haven't seen anything yet. Do you still stand by that quote? I sure do, and I, I really feel bad that after that, I, I, I brought, I immediately came back and beat Barnett with a go-go choke, which I think shocked a lot of people, and it was pretty good. And then from there on out, I kind of I lost my way, and I stumbled, and it's been a rough road. And for me, it's the it's what people don't know. It's what I went through this last three years. That the fact that I'm here fighting again is it's something to me. It really means something that I've been able to get through everything that I've gotten through. And uh, and I still still firmly believe the world is yet to see the best, and it's time they do. Did you come up with that speech on the fly? That in the ring, I did. People thought I was I, the laugh I had planned because I was just I did it all the time during the training camp, so it just kind of came out. But yeah, I was just I didn't want to say much. I just wanted to make it short and sweet and get out of there. And then, of course, the famous John Anik started asking me questions after, and that was like a big thing. But uh, yeah, I didn't. It was so awkward because I didn't know what I, I was just doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have another one of those planned? Or I guess you didn't uh, really have that planned aside from the laugh, but is the laugh coming back? I just have a plan for an exciting fight. That's that's the plan. So you mentioned what you've gone through the last three years. I know before your last fight you were a bit hesitant to discuss that. Um, what, what what were those years like where, where you, you weren't able to get into the cage, obviously, uh, due to USADA and that suspension? Um, you had to, I'm sure, do a lot of reflecting during that time. Well, I was going through medical problems. I was being treated by doctors and decided to agree with the treatments. And they, 15 months, we, we fought. And we, we uh, the doc, four doctors I worked at, I had two board-certified endocrinologists. I had a Wisconsin State Athletic Commission doctor all fighting in Tusada about my medical condition. It proved every, every time the first TUE they came back, uh, the doctors rebuttaled everything, and then USADA came up with a whole other set of reasons what was wrong, and they rebuttaled those two, and then they just said, you know what, this is how it is, and if you want to go to arbitration, we're going to give you a four-year suspension. You know, that's what we're going to fight to give you. And I was just like, you know what, 
I'm five months away. I don't care about this. It was going to cost me $30,000 to go to arbitration, and they, and they were threatening me with a four-year suspension. I'm like, I already went through the darkest age of my life. I'm already done and over with. Why even risk making it worse? I know I didn't do anything wrong. I know that, uh, I, you know what I mean, I was being treated by doctors. They proved everything. And, and the thing that, that hurts the most is USADA wouldn't even say, hey, this is unfortunate Ben had this. You know, here's what happened, but he's not a cheater. No. They they don't care about that. They don't care about anything. They just smash guys when they can, burn us at the stake, as Josh Burnett said. And that's why I, for Josh Burnett to step up and do what he did and win an arbitration, it was really it was really a big thing. But the timing was really bad because I would have went to arbitration a month later, and I knew they weren't going to let that happen again. So everything was just kind of against me, and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to get through this, and I'm just. You know, I don't get happy about much, but I am happy to be fighting again. This happened two years ago in February, like February 2017. So much has happened since then. We've seen what's happened in, in the case of John Jones. Uh, Jeff Nowitzki says he's become more of an advocate uh, for the fighters. Um, did you talk to Jeff Nowitzki during this process? Was there anybody that had your back from the promotion that tried to help you out along uh, the, that path? And also, if you look at what's happened recently, do you think things would be different if it happened now? I... I don't know. I, I tell you this. I was very alone. <laughs> you know, my management was with me. My doctors were with me. My family were with me. That's it. And I was, I was, I was alone besides that. So, well, During that time, you were growing your business. You had your, your gym. Um, did, is that kind of what helped keep you sane, is, is being able yeah. to be in there with, with, your, I, with your colleagues and, and, uh, and work? I was thankful for it before everything happened. It, getting through the last three years only was because of that gym. All the great people that come there and the lives that we've been able to affect and change, the kids that we've helped, it's a pretty amazing place. I said it's got my name on it, but I would call it something else if I could, just so everybody knew it was it's there because of them. And that's what makes it such an awesome place. It's a lot of great people, great like-minded people all come together doing something, making each other better, helping each other, showing the true spirit of mixed martial arts, and that's what I'm probably most proud of. Did you struggle with any sort of depression or mental health uh, issues during that time? And, and if so, how were you able to overcome that? Because it does seem like uh, this really affected that, you. That's, that's, that's what it was all about, honestly. And it was, the whole thing was a mental health issue. And uh, just to not get any help and, and not being allowed to get help, it was, it was really hard. I mean, therapists were writing to Usada saying, listen, it's unethical for us to treat him when he has a physical condition. And they, don't, they just, you know... They would just send emails back, no phone calls, nothing else. So it's pretty brutal, pretty brutal time. That's why I just chose. I, I really just didn't have anything to say because I have a different mentality. A lot of people said, "Oh, you got to go out and say all this stuff." I'm like, no. From what I've seen, all the liars in my life, they they're the ones out preaching and saying it right off. Oh, I didn't do it. Just deny, 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 deny till you die. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything because I don't need to deny anything. I know God. God, if you believe in God. God knows in my heart what really happened, what's, what's the truth, and that's that's all I need. And here I am, I'm fighting again, and that's what matters. So I believe my time's coming. I'm going to show the world I can really do as a much martial artist. I definitely think you've said enough in terms of that regard. So with Andre Arlovsky, what have you seen from him recently that uh, that leads you to believe that he was either better back then or, or is just as good now, and you guys have both just evolved? Um, I see Andre is just, he's just a durable He's just 10 years of being Andre. 
Um, I just I kind of see he he has his game, and in some fights it works, sometimes it doesn't. But he's he's always there. He's always there to fight. I don't know if Andre's ever um, called out of a fight with an injury. I can't even say that. Now I've had a couple things. <laughs> injuries took me out of some major fights, so it's really disappointing. And I don't think Andre's had any of that. So really stand up mixed martial artist, and uh, yeah, obviously a guy I've had a, a past with. Um, always always complimentary to him too because every time we're outside of fighting he's a super cool guy and this is just two mixed martial artists we got to go out and put on put on a great show and show the world what the heavyweights can do well absolutely um your last fight had kind of a controversial decision it was unanimous but that doesn't tell the whole story a very close fight with blagoy ivanov um when you had heard that he won a unanimous decision were you uh, upset by that i mean upset's probably one of the emotions i mean some of the worst judging around. I mean, I'm pretty pretty confident. I had most of the media, it was 18 media sites, all said I won the fight. We watched the fight. Uh, so, without taking me out of it, the facts are I outstruck him two to one in the third round, and two of the judges gave it to him. It makes no sense whatsoever. All three judges had a different scorecard. I mean, I don't know if that makes that that blows your mind, but how do three judges all have different scorecards? It's it's unreal, and that's why I've said it for 20 years. You don't let it go to the judges. It's just the guy had a tough chin, and I needed a fourth round. I believe if there was a fourth round, I would have finished the fight, no doubt. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, actually. There was another uh, fight on the weekend where all, four, all three judges had completely different scorecards. It is very odd to see that, and uh, I'm on MMA. This be happening, you know. What what would you do to remedy that? If you, if you could choose a, a way for the judging to improve, uh, what would you implement if you had the choice? Well, the judges should have to go through a criteria. They should have to be go through testing and, you know, be licensed. And I think that'd be a good start. Like, these are licensed judges. As far as I know right now, they, they claim they go through stuff, but I, I, I don't know. Some of these people, I don't think they've ever done mixed martial arts. I know that they get to use person how they personally feel about people. I, I don't know. There's some, there's some things that definitely could be fixed, but it's, it's hard. It's hard of the night of the fight, and things are going to – judging judging has been there even with boxing. It's just one of those things forever. The way to remedy it is what they always say, go out and finish the fight. And I can probably say in 36 wins, I've finished 33 of my fights. So That's the homemade remedy. Well, let's hope that, that uh, that's what happens uh, on Saturday uh, for you, Ben. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really do appreciate your honesty and you opening up about uh, what you went through uh, during that time. I appreciate it. It's only because, uh, you know, because you guys asked guess for the good good interview, so I wanted to give you one. Bye-bye. That was Ben Rothwell. Very honest interview. I loved hearing uh, what he had to say about what he went through. And uh, it sounds like uh, a really, really tough couple of years for Ben Rothwell. And I appreciate him sharing that with us. That was, uh, that was uh, interesting to hear. I know, again, last time before he fought in Wichita, he did a scrum and said, I'm going to address that at a later time. And I guess he kind of outlined why. He explained that uh, he didn't want to make it look like he was making excuses. He hates seeing people come out and, you know, immediately come out and say that they did nothing wrong. So Ben Rothwell explains why he, uh, he had such an issue with what happened uh, with the ruling from USADA. And it sounds like they really, you know, nailed him, nailed his back against the wall and made him accept that two-year suspension and... uh doesn't seem fair. But, uh, you know, we were just hearing his side of the story. So uh, hopefully 
they uh, that gets sorted out. And, uh, I, you know, I doubt USADA is going to make a statement based on what they heard there. But um, I'll ask for one. We'll see what happens. Also on this card, as I mentioned earlier, Juan Adams versus uh, Greg Hardy making his return to the Octagon for the third time against uh, Juan Adams, who I think is making his third oct- Octagon appearance as well. Had that uh, that win over Chris De La Roca in his debut and a loss to Arjun Buller. He's 1-1 one one in the UFC with a win on the Contender Series. Greg Hardy 1-1 one one in the UFC with two wins on the Contender Series. And now they're going to lock horns this weekend. And uh, Greg Hardy... Uh, will join us now on the TSN MMA show. We heard from Juan Adams a couple weeks back. Now we get to hear from the Prince of War as he joins us on the TSN MMA show. I'm joined now by the Prince of War, Greg Hardy, third UFC fight coming up, uh, this time against Juan Adams. I noticed something today. Juan Adams' nickname is The Kraken, and back when you were on the Panthers, that was also your nickname. That's pretty weird. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. There's there's, uh, Overlord Kraken and there's the Baby Kraken. I'm I'm not going to try to guess which one's which. I, I have a feeling I'll probably get it right based on your vantage point of this. My man. <laughs> <laughs> so Juan's been talking a lot, even before this fight was lined up. Is he trying to get you to fight emotionally here? I mean, we saw what happened in your first fight against Crowder. Um, I don't know if that was uh, symptomatic of emotion or what that was, but uh, it, it, if that was the case, then I'm, I'm guessing that's what he's trying to get you to do. You know, um... I think it's been a common theme here of late just to try to get me off of my game. Everybody's seen that um, when I am on my game, I'm a very dangerous man. You know, um, knockouts are coming. It's inevitable. And, you know, I'm not, I haven't really been listening, but I, I have taken a stance on what he's been saying. And it's, it goes basically like, uh, you know, I forgive him. And it's, I understand, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a small fish. He's a small-time guy. He's a, he's trying to get some fans behind him. He's trying to rally, man. And you can't blame him for that. You know, it's the only way he's going to get pumped. But uh, it's, it's not the level that I would like to do, too. So I'm going to keep it all knockouts and happy thoughts, you know? Is there a certain mindset when you were on the football field and, and people were talking smack to you, if, if, if you were getting emotional there, did that translate better than it does in this particular setting? Um, For sure. And um, I would say that, you know, it was just a difference in the levels that I've um, been able to reach in football versus MMA, man. And MMA, I'm still, I'm still a kid, you know, I'm still a rookie, but overall as an athlete, as a, as a sports guy, man, I'm, I'm a vet. And I just don't think a lot of guys have ever taken that route of trying to piss me off during a football game because the quarterback suffers. <laughs> and I was mature, and I was mature enough and um, composed enough at all times to make that a guarantee, you know, a promise. And that's what I'm working towards in MMA, man, more so than just getting all emotionally out of whack just making sure that it's a guarantee and it's a promise that if you say my name, the boss is going to send me and I'm going to break your face. Is there a lot less talk when it comes to the O-line and D-line versus, say, a, a cornerback and a wide receiver? It seems like the D-line are just, you know, you guys are just running at each other and, and <laughs> you know, trying to get to where you need to get. But with, with the wide receiver and cornerback, it seems like there's a lot of jawing. Is, is there a lot less jawing in, in, on the O-line and D-line? I would say there is a little bit less, man, because you got to think these are small guys running down the edge banging up with each other, trying to get trying to get tackles, arm tackling. When you get down there into that pit, man, these are two hundred ninety five pound monsters, ten eleven percent body fat. You don't want you don't want to piss a dragon off like that, you know? <laughs> it's just it's just not smart. And uh like I said, at the end of the day you're running back and your quarterback suffers, so you mentioned you're a rookie in this game. You spoke to Ariel Hawani uh, earlier this week 
and you said you want to become the greatest fight sport heavyweight of all time. Uh, you're 31 years old in, in two weeks. Do you have enough time when you think of names like Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, for example? Can you get to that level in, in this short window of time that you're going to be competing in this sport? You know, everybody's got to keep it realistic, boss, man. When you come, when you come to those kind of conclusions and you, you think about those kind of people and you name those kind of names, you definitely got to think about, hey, is, there's no way in the world I'm going to get to those amount of fights. But when you think about me as an athlete as a whole or as a combat sports athlete as a whole, you know, with me crossing over to the boxing, to the MMA, from the football, I think that I'm going to be able to reach those heights. You know, not necessarily just, you know, the great amount of fights, the, uh, the great opponents. At the end of the day, you know, I'm going to have to come up as a rookie, fight these new guys, fight these beginners. And that's going to take a couple of years off of my life, man. But I'm still young in the fight game. I like the football game. And I think that the uh, big fights are going to come and I'm going to dominate them. You know, it's going to it's going to show in the way that I approach these fights and the way that I take them down. It's going to get substantially better, substantially faster than anybody's ever seen. And I think that's when my greatness is going to shine. And I think that's when my title is going to come through as one of the greatest combat sports athletes to ever exist. After your last fight, in your press conference, you, you said the following. This is going to make Bo Jackson look like a joke. I'm the fight sports athlete version of what Michael Jordan can be. This is just getting started. We're scratching the surface, basically. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Because I think a lot of people were trying to interpret uh, that quote. Well, you know, I don't know how they would like to interpret it or what they would say. You know, fans are going to be fans. People are going to talk. But at the end of the day, um, I want to make it. I want to make it okay to cross over the sports and be great in a lot of things. It's uh, something that's not smiled upon or really frowned upon these days. Being able to do a lot of things. I don't think a lot of people know this, but I played for Ole Miss basketball team. I played for the football team, and I took a lot of crap for that. And then when I tried to cross over from football in the fight, I took a lot of crap for that. But I am not human, and um, I am different from other people, just like Bo Jackson, just like Michael Jordan, man. and the level of greatness that him, Kobe, and all these guys have obtained comes from attacking these levels and doing it the way nobody has ever seen it done. And that's all I'm saying is I'm going to do it the way nobody has ever seen it done. I'm going to take your image and what you think this should be, and I'm going to crush it, you know? And as far as the Bo Jackson comment, man, you know, he, he played three sports. He played two sports, man, but uh, I'm a pro bowler here. What happens when I win the belt in MMA? And then what happens when I start competing for world titles in boxing? And maybe I might even switch over to overseas basketball, man. But what what can you say then? Like who 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 is going to be in those those ranks with me? These guys switched over sports and they played them. You know, I'm I'm in here to dominate, and it's looking like I can dominate. I'm putting in the work and I'm doing it in a way that nobody has ever done it. And that's all I was saying. Why do you think that switching over sports is frowned upon? Uh, you look at the level of athleticism in all of these different sports, and um, there are a lot of people where if they have the right mentality they could switch over to, say, combat sports or anything along those lines. I personally think that if, you know, MMA organizations and promotions scouted some of the, the college football players that they don't think are going to make it to the pros but have a, a great degree of athleticism or a great degree of size, that might be a good way to bring that level of athlete to the sport. Because as you mentioned, you know, being a former Pro Bowl football player, we haven't seen that level of sport, aside from maybe a Herschel Walker in his 40s, compete in <laughs> MMA before. That's kind of insulting that you compare me at 31 to Herschel Walker at 40, but you know. <laughs> I'm talking gonna... about I'm talking about the crossovers, <laughs> just just the crossover. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. But uh, no, man, it's, it it comes down to the basic principle that has always existed in this world, man. People fear what they do not understand, and I'm trying to segue and make a way for these for these guys in the future, man, to make it possible to be whatever you want to be on on any plane or any field, as long as you put in the work, as long as you can compete, and as long as you dominate, you know. 
And um, slowly but surely, and I'm trying to show the people the, the beauty in this, the peace and the violence. This is a this is a beautiful thing, man. Athletes that are versatile, man. It's a it's a fun thing to watch, just seeing other guys come over and seeing how they can translate. And even going through it myself, man, this is something new, you know. And I think people should embrace it, and that's the message I'm trying to put out. This is this is the new age. This is the new era. I am the new machine. I'm the new man. You mentioned the peace and the violence. Were you, let's say, ten years ago or whenever you know you were a pro football player? Were you an angrier person, like as a human being and a more reckless individual than you are now? And has martial arts changed, you know, basically your instincts as a human being? You know, it's changed my whole outlook on life, brother. You know, even like just having kids and the, the things that were happening to me, man. I wasn't responding to them correctly. You know, um, just if you, even if you just look at my old name, Overlord Kraken, man. That's the devil's pet. You know. Everything was stemming from a place of violence and anger, uncontrolled, and just beautiful rage, nonetheless, but rage. And um, that's why, you know, I kind of went with the whole rebranding technique, tactic, and just changing the name, changing the perspective, because I changed throughout this process, you know, to survive in this world, which we all know to be dangerous and super humbling with some of the most dangerous people in the world, the American top team. I had to humble myself and get a new outlook on life where I would have been crushed and crumbled, man. And, uh, you know, I noticed that, and then I actually started to see the benefit and um, what it did for me as a person as a human being for my relationships, man. And it just changed the way, like I said, I look at life in general. When did you notice that change? How far into your mixed martial arts journey? Slowly and surely every day, man. Like it wasn't, um, wasn't a publicity stunt for me. So I wasn't looking for it every day. This was a, something more like AA. I had to take it step by step, day by day. This was a process for me. It still is, you know, and it has been the whole time. This is not, this is not something that I do for the fans or something that I do for uh, the reaction. This is something I've been doing for myself. And, you know, as you know, trying to get better, trying to lose weight, trying to do whatever a human being does that takes time and um, patience and just the, the, the grind, the grinded out attitude is a day by day thing. It can't, it can't be done within leaps and bounds, you know? After your last fight, Dana White said he'd like to see the nine other people that your opponent beat. He was very unimpressed by your last opponent. Was he right to be? Uh, well, we're going to start by saying Dana, right? Dana White's always right, buddy. He's the boss. <laughs> we're going to give whatever he wants. And um, I would say this, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt, brother. That just probably means that he's going to put something forth that the fans are going to love. You know, Big Manor is one of the best, sickest freaking matchmakers of all time. And he put that together to entertain, and it was an entertaining match, man. It was a beautiful knockout. I challenge any man to stand in front of me and take the jabs that he was taking and not be on the rails. So I take no offense in what he said. I love the boss, man, and I know he's going to put something in front of me that's going to entertain the whole entire world like he has done every single time, time and time again. Juan Adams accused you of cherry-picking opponents. Um, did you ever have any say in who you were going to fight next? Or, or, or basically, have you never turned down, like, have you ever turned down any particular opponents before? I turned down Derek Lewis. <laughs> they, they kept suggesting that. Man, the only thing that I've ever turned down is unfair fights. And people that think that I should fight Stipe or DC after entering the um, fight game two years ago, is, is, I, I just think they're silly. But other than that, man, it's, 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 it's open ticket. I fight whoever they put in front of me. I fight people that are, are of my same caliber. I fight the people that have been fighting longer than me. You know, and I think that's... You gotta you gotta examine who's talking. This is a child speaking, so clearly a child's not gonna examine the facts. Who's been in the fight game longer? Every single one of my opponents has had more competition than me, has had more fights than me. Would you call that fair? Would you expect to come over to the NFL and just start playing? Well, not me personally, but uh, let's rewind the tape for one second. 
when were you offered Derek Lewis? When, when did that happen? Oh, no, it wasn't an offer. I'm just saying, like, the, the fight fans are wanting me to take these fights and, and um, fight these guys and are wondering why I'm not fighting, you know, Stipe and all these other guys. Oh, I see so what I you mean. Saying, oh, I, was, I was responding to that. But other than those guys, other than people that don't make sense to fight veterans in the sport, and, and it, and it, you know what, honestly, it's downright disrespectful. Because if I would have came in and tried to fight guys with 20 fights, 30 fights, the actual fighters, not well, and I don't mean Juan Adams, he's not an actual fighter. He's a, like I said, a child that is barely, barely surviving in this in this fight game. Um, but the actual fighters in this game, I feel like would have not respected me, and that was more important to me than to me than anything to earn the respect to fight the guys that I'm supposed to be fighting, like I did when I was uh, in my first fight. I paid to go down. I fought amateur, uh, and I did it three times. Then I did it uh, on a contender series level. I fought an NFL caliber athlete with a way better record than me, you know, and I've done it after that and consistently and over and over and over again. I just think these guys, um, they don't believe in the results. But the proof is in the pudding, the power is in the punch, and he'll find out quickly. How soon do you think it can realistically be before you're ranked in the top 15 at heavyweight? You know, like I said, I'm not really concerned about that. Just like the whole figuring things out, learning, changing, and, 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 and becoming a, a better me. The rankings shouldn't matter, you know. I'm becoming a better fighter. I'm working on my fight game. I'm working on my fight IQ. And I'm uh, divulging myself into the details and becoming a better martial artist as a whole, man. And I think you can't do that if you're worried about where you're, where you're ranked. You know what I mean? 31 is a is a very young age. You know, as John Jones, the Bones, John Bones Jones said himself, you know, um, he's 31. He's one of the youngest guys in the sport that's up there in the rankings and it's a beautiful time for him. You know, I'm 30, going on 31, so I feel like I feel like I could take a page from his book and feel comfortable where I am and just continually work on my game and become the beast that I, I promised everybody I would. All right, so finally, you know, you mentioned people suggesting you fight Stipe and Derek Lewis at this stage, which is, is pretty off, uh, obviously. But when <laughs> when do you think it would be fair to throw you into the deep end with some ranked competition with some higher, you know, guys that have been in the sport for a while? Um, do you think that that's something that's going to be a, a slow process or something that you think is going to happen sooner rather than later? You know, that's not for me to judge. I think, in, you know, in the ring after my last fight, everybody was like, oh, well, why do you, why do you keep saying oh, my agent's going to pick or the UFC's going to pick? I just think it, it falls on the... On the, on the on the area of it's silly for me to even consider who I should fight or what I should be doing because my knowledge and the information that I have on this sport is minimal in comparison to the guys that are doing this and making the match making the matches and, and managing me and stuff like that if that makes sense it's just it's not something that uh I can really accurately give you a lot of times table on but I will say that it's going to become it's going to come faster than anybody else has done it. And I think that's what I need like, fight fans to focus on. You know, you see all these guys rising in the ranks and fight year after year after year after year, losing and not willing to put the time, taking seven months off. I fight every two and a half months, man, two and a half, three months, four time, four or five times a year. I'm giving you my blood, sweat, tears, and everything. So it's going to come. It's going to come fast. But I'm going to be patient enough to wait for the intelligent people in this, in this fight sport to either give me the knowledge to know when I should be fighting these big guy time guys or to tell me that it's time. All right, the Prince of War, Greg Hardy, formerly the Kraken, taking on the man now known as the Kraken, Juan Adams, in San Antonio this weekend. Uh, it airs up here on TSN. Uh, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it, Greg. It's a pleasure, brother. Thank you for having me. All right, there you have it. It's Greg Hardy on the TSN MMA show. And uh, next week, 
Lots of coverage from TSN in Edmonton, Alberta. It's UFC 240 headlined by Max Holloway versus Frankie Edgar and a co-main event of Chris Cyborg versus Felicia Spencer, the undefeated Canadian Felicia Spencer. I asked Felicia when she fought in Rochester, would you accept a fight with Chris Cyborg in the featherweight division? It makes a lot of sense to have it on this Edmonton card. And she did not hesitate to say yes. And you like to see that kind of spirit because Chris Cyborg isn't somebody that people are lining up to fight. But uh, Felicia Spencer must think that she has a good chance here or she probably wouldn't have accepted such a highly built fight. Number two ranked women's featherweight worldwide, Felicia Spencer. Taking on the number one ranked featherweight worldwide per the topology rankings in Chris Cyborg. The UFC does not have this division ranked because there just are not that many women's featherweights. At least natural women's featherweights. But Felicia Spencer is, Chris Cyborg is, and Megan Anderson. And uh, Felicia Spencer just beat Megan Anderson. So she's run through the entire division to get to Chris Cyborg. Also on that card, uh, Armin Tsurukian, uh, who a lot of people are very high on taking on the Canadian gangster. We just saw the Brazilian gangster, the Bra- Brazilian gangsta, Livia Renata Souza. She unfortunately suffered a loss this past weekend. Against a very impressive debut for uh, Brianna Van Buren. Looks like she, her striking looks much improved. Her wrestling looks really good. She's going to be a force in that 115 division. Just just watch. But uh, the Canadians on the card, we've got uh, Jillian Robertson opening up uh, the TSN. Oh, uh, yeah, the TSN prelims. I think she's opening that up. Or, or that maybe that one's on Fight Pass. I can't remember. But you've got Gavin Tucker, Akeem Dawadu. Marc-Andre Barrio, the power bar against uh, Christoph Jotko to open up the main card, followed by the Canadian gangster against Armin Sarukian on the main card. And, of course, Nico Price, who is never in boring fights on the main card as well. You know, not the deepest main card, but uh, I hate complaining about it because I think that it's silly. I think that we, we get to watch the highest level of mixed martial arts on a weekly basis, and we should just enjoy what's put in front of us because I look forward to all of the fights. I just do. And people might think that's weird. And people might think that I'm uh, I'm just towing the line here, but uh, I, I truly do. I truly am eager to see what happens in all these fights because, you know, Robin Black has a very interesting way of analyzing these fights by saying there's just not, a, like, he doesn't have all the information that he would need to, need to make a prediction because it's just none of it, you know, is not all put in front of us. We don't know what that person's going through on that given day. And I think that's fair, and I think that's what makes this sport special. You see, like, Uriah Faber getting a, a knockout within the first minute. Nobody in their right mind would have predicted that. Nobody. Jermaine Durandame getting a, a knockout over the undefeated Aspen Ladd in 16 seconds. Nobody predicts this kind of stuff. That's why the sport is so special. Like, I mean, if you see the Golden State Warriors against the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm talking about the current Cleveland Cavaliers, you know 98% of the time what's going to happen. And we have those kind of matchups in pro sports daily where you have a lopsided, lopsided matchup that you just know almost certainly it's going to go that way. Now, the reason you watch is because there's always a chance that the other team is going to win, and that's why, what makes sports special. But we also need to keep in mind that it just happens more often in MMA. Like MMA, crazy stuff happens. It happens out of nowhere. I mean, how often do you see someone hit a three-point shot from like behind half court to win a game? Like, that's what happens on every fight card. We see these crazy things happen. That's why I love this sport. I'm not trying to put down basketball. I love basketball as well. I got into this industry because of basketball. So, 
that's why this sport is so awesome. You know, and if you choose to not watch a card or you don't want to pay for a pay-per-view, I get it. It's cool. But to me, there's no better sport in the world to watch than mixed martial arts on a weekly basis. It's awesome. It's why I cover the sport. It's why I do the show. It's why I, I follow the sport like, you know, I'm tracking the dots in Pac-Man. I'm always following it. I had no I had no good analogy there, as you could tell from the long pause. I'm like Pac-Man. You know, people say they're like Pac-Man all the time. Yeah, that's me. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be a fun, fun fight week to cover. Edmonton's a great city. I love Edmonton. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm looking forward to covering that particular event, although I will have to interview Hakeem Dawoodoo during fight week, which is one of my greatest fears because he is the most intense human being on the planet during fight week. But, uh, you know, it's always fun. We'll see how long I can interview him for. I'm going to challenge myself and try to interview him for like six minutes because when he, when I'm interviewing him and he has that face where he looks like he wants to kill anybody who's in front of him because of the intensity, and he acknowledges this. I'm not just making this up because I interviewed him in Ottawa when he wasn't, uh, he wasn't uh, fighting. He, he didn't have an opponent yet. It's like interviewing two different people. It's wild. But uh, I've mentioned that I get into fight or flight mode before when I do interviews. Hakeem is, like, number one on my list of people that, are like, when I'm in an interview with them, I, I'm, my mind is like, you have to get out of this because he is going to hurt you. <laughs> like, you, can't, you would not survive if anything bad happened. And he's got this look on his face like, I'm bothering him. <laughs> None of it's true, of course. And I, I've laughed with Hakeem about this. But, uh, yeah, during fight week, you will not see many people that are as intense as that man. Greg Hardy, who I spoke to, that was the other fight or flight mode where I interviewed him. During uh, after the ceremonial weigh-ins once, and uh, he 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 had like this this glee about him about have, getting the chance to to hurt his opponent the next day that was very off-putting for me that I I I got very frightened. Those are pretty much I think those are the two. There, there are probably others that I can't think of right now, but uh, those are the ones where I was like I need to get out of this right now. Um. Hopefully I can uh, I, I can avoid that. I got through the Greg Hardy interview today, but he doesn't have that, that Friday night intensity that he had when I interviewed him in person. So uh, let's call it a wrap for this uh, this particular show. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully I'll be back with Joe next week. I don't know when I would get a chance to do that. Uh, hopefully I'll be in uh, early next week, and Joe and I can, can record something to preview this event. That would be fun. So uh, thanks for tuning in. This has been the TSN MMA Show, and uh, enjoy UFC Fight Night in San Antonio this weekend. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.